Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Today, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk at the Credenda Agenda pre-conference seminar for ministers and ministers in training, titled The Puritan Five. In order for ministry to engage effectively with the challenges before us, we need to define what we love and love what we defined. This is the last talk of the conference titled, Reformed Catholicity Starts at Home. If you'd like to hear the other talks, you can find them on the Canon app. All right, let's thank the Lord. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. I pray you watch over us and, and uh, give us insight into our own situations, our own uh, church tangles, perhaps, church politics, and of course, into insight into our own hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this last talk is uh, Reformed Catholicity Starts at Home. Reformed Catholicity Starts at Home. Well, uh, there are a number of things that come uh, together in this talk, and, and as in the previous talks, please feel free to stop and ask a question or yell, what about? Uh, I want to have it as free-flowing as we can. And, uh, and I would like to... Um, uh, scratch whatever itch you've got, not the one you should have had. You know, so we, I'd like to get at um, the, the the real issue. Reformed Catholicity starts at home. Well, what does that what does that mean? Well, um, a common secularist assumption is that conflict is the result of differences. Conflict is the result of differences, and differences come about because we don't realize. In the Cold War, that the Russians had their own perspective, and we had ours, and, and they were on the other side of the world, way the heck on the other side of the world. And so what we need are diplomats and conversations and foreign exchange student programs and uh, international food fairs. And, we, you know, we just, if we just realize that deep down we're all the same, you know, we're... And see, this is what has led to all our problems with the Klingons as well. The, 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 Kling, the Klingons are way on the other side, and they've got their hopes, dreams, and aspirations, which we don't know anything about, because we don't... See, that's where conflict comes from. Well, the problem with that theory is the Bible. <laughs> other than that, how... Um, <laughs> In James chapter 4, James tells us where conflict comes from. He, he, this is where conflict comes from, he says. From whence come wars and fightings among you? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to a Christian church. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members, the things you, that you want? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that, the fr that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that the Scriptures saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, veers toward envy? Your, your front end needs to be aligned. You let the wheel go, there's an envy ditch, let the wheel go, and it's going to veer in that direction. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 
We want to think that conflict is about the territory or it's about the object or the salary increase or the difference of theologic, theological opinion, etc. We want to think that it's about the object. And uh, the Bible tells us that conflict is the result of what happen, what's happening within the desirers of objects, what's happening in here. All right, so um, I'll, I'll give you a few illustrations of this. I, I've been a minister for 34 years or thereabouts, uh, 77 uh, or thereabouts is when I began preaching in what is now called Christ Church. It was Faith Fellowship and then Community Evangelical Fellowship and now Christ Church. I've been a minister for 30, pushing 35 years. In all those 35 years, I've not had one collision with a Roman Catholic priest. I've not had any run-ins with Nazarenes. I've not had any conflicts or long drawn out battles with Assemblies of God pastors. I have had conflict after conflict after conflict with reformed post-millennial theonomic Presbyterian reform guys just like me. <laughs> right. Well, think of it another way. Um, how many fights have you had with your third cousin? And how many fights did you have with your brother? <laughs> this is not hard, right? Um, if we know uh, there's a verse in Proverbs that says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and, and we are all called brothers in Christ in the New Testament. And we can gather from this that being a brother is a good thing. But if we looked at the actual track record of brothers in the Old Testament, what brothers actually do, the first murder was a brother killing a brother, fratricide, Cain killing Abel, and it was not because they were unable to see past their cultural differences. <laughs> there, were no, there, there weren't any, there weren't any cultural differences. It was, the thing that caused the conflict was how close they were, how similar they were, how much they had in common. Then you have, of course, Joseph and his brothers. They sold them into slavery in Egypt, the common father. Um, and it's, it's what they had in common that brought them into conflict. And you have, of course, David and his brothers, and you have uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and you have Jacob and Esau. And, you know, all the way through the Old Testament, you might think being a brother is a pretty bad deal. Um, well, we live in a fallen, bent, sinful world. And what we, have, what we have trouble with is we have trouble seeing ourselves desiring. We have trouble seeing ourselves desiring. And we have trouble seeing how our desires bring us into conflict with people who desire the same thing. Okay, so um, I don't know how many times I've had to counsel New St. Andrews students, young guys, generally in the spring. They come in to see me. Mr. Wilson, I'm thinking of calling Susie Q's dad. And, um, and I know that this guy is roommates with the guy I talked to last week about Susie Q. <laughs> I don't know how many times this has happened. And they, what, what brings them into conflict? This is what makes all the Shakespeare plays go. Right? People standing right next to each other, wanting the same thing, and then you bend to reach for it at the same time and you bonk your head, right? You want the same thing. Why do you want the same thing? You want the same thing because you are so similar. Why do brothers come into conflict? Because they have similar desires, tastes, you know. Each one of them thinks highly enough of dad to want to be the firstborn, 
right? Each, each one wants that position or wants the blessing or wants the... the these things are uh, caused by similar desires, not dissimilar desires. Now, uh, what this means is that... Uh, it, well, f- first, Jesus. it should be noted that Jesus was delivered up out of envy. Jesus was delivered up out of envy. And the crucifixion of Jesus is the, uh, the measure that God took to put this kind of thing to death. So Jesus was delivered up out of envy, and in his dying, put envy to death. And the spirit in us tends toward envy. And you cannot, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, that, you know, anger is fierce, but who can stand against envy? You know, envy is heavier than wet sand. It, who, can, who can stand against envy? Everything is turned, every last argument, every rational thing that you bring forward just feeds the monster, right? Envy, envy is that sin which feeds off of its own refutations, right? You refute it, and that makes things worse. You re- refute it again, and it makes things worse. Um, so Saul is envious of David, right? He's envious of David's success. So what should David do? David should be an even more faithful, diligent servant of Saul. Kill more Philistines. Does that help? No. Every Philistine he kills, it makes it worse. Right? So we think think that some sort of rational appeal is going to fix turmoil in the church. We think some sort of, guys, guys, guys. You know, um, like that far side cartoon, the sheep on his hind legs. Guys, we don't have to be just sheep. (laughs) <laughs> you think, well, yes, you do. And, and you want to stand up in the middle of some ecclesiastical bloodletting and say, you know, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. This, and, it, and it doesn't. And the more t- sense you talk in the middle of this situation that makes no sense, the more vigorously and accurately and cogently you refute it, the worse it will get. All right, this is, this is a weird... Um, energy, energy sucker. It grows and swells based on its ability to feed off of its refutations, its horizontal refutations. So you're living next door to a guy, and this guy you're living next door to is in full breach of the Tenth Commandment. He covets your car, he covets your house, he covets your maidservants, and he covets, he covets everything you've got. And you think that if, all you, if you could just show him that you were a true servant of Christ and that you were living under God's blessing, that, and God, because you're living under God's blessing, God would give you a new sports car, even redder and shinier than the first one, right? And a bigger house on the other side of the, this guy. Um, you think that if God would pour out his blessings on you, thus refuting him, that that makes the envy go away. No, it, it just makes it worse. Worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, here's the, this is the difficulty. I've seen in, uh, and I know I'm very grateful for all of you for coming from all over the place. Um, and so when I say our circles, I'm speaking very loosely. I'm speaking generally, speaking in conservative, evangelical, reformed circles. There has been a tendency that uh, I have seen in our circles to think that these conflicts that we find ourselves in are the result of some, mysteri- some mysterious forces that are beyond human understanding. And all we need to do is pack up and sort of start thinking friendly thoughts about the Anglicans on the other side of the world. 
if we think Anglican-friendly thoughts, we will not come into conflict with them on the other side of the world. Um, and, and we don't, right? Because we don't go over there. As soon as we went over there, here's the rule to live by. Wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> you know, you know. Okay, wherever I go, I'm going to look out at this new situation out of my eyeballs. I'm going to be in a new situation. I'm going to be in a new situation where there are positions of honor and positions of less honor. I'm going to be in a place where there are uh, practices that are highly esteemed, practices that are not highly esteemed. It may be, you may, may go into a denomination where they call each other the reverend and the right reverend and the very reverend and reverend on his good days. And, and so you have that system and you say, okay, that's your pecking order. Or you might go low. You might go low ecclesiology and go into a Plymouth Brethren sort of thing where everybody's brother, brother so-and-so and brother so-and-so and brother so-and-so. But like Orwell, some brothers are more brothers than others. <laughs> some brothers... Um, Who's the pastor? Oh, we don't have pastors. We're all just brothers. Come on, who's the pastor? He is. <laughs> he, he is you know. It's like at the top of the Politburo, everybody's comrade, right? In an egalitarian system, it's comrade all the way up. You, but it's all, they're all comrades, and there's a pecking order as, as inexorable and as solidified as any, you know, anywhere else. So you talk to, uh, I know that some of you are from Reformed Baptist background. Have, you know, Baptists don't have bishops, right? And, uh, and so if I asked a Reformed Baptist guy I'm getting to know, so who's your bishop? I'd say, pulling his leg. And he said, oh, we don't have bishops. And I said, oh, excuse me, are you a Walt Ch Chantry Church or an L. Martin Church? <laughs> well, we're an L. Martin Church. <laughs> All right, these things, the, there's an inescapable, this, is, this has nothing to do with, Baptists or Presbyterians or Anglicans or Lutherans, this is a human being deal. This is, this is what human beings do. This is what people do. And Jesus, since Jesus came to establish the new humanity, Jesus came to uh, institute a new way of being human. The way he did it was by dying on the cross, and he did it in such a way as to put this um, impetus, this the spirit that dwelleth, dwelleth in us uh, toward envy to death because he gives more grace. Okay, so he gives more grace. So what is the grace that he does? Well, this is what I mean by Reformed Catholicity starts at home. This, this, I do not mean that we must never come in conflict. I, I do not mean that polemical exchanges are never, appro uh, never appropriate. I don't, I, I'm, not I'm not among those who believe that a group hug will fix everything. You know, that's, um, that's not how the Bible speaks. What we want, what we want to do... Oh, let's see. Maybe it's in here somewhere. Um, it's in Galatians where the Apostle Paul says he wishes that those who uh, trouble you would go the whole way and cut the whole thing off. Um, oh... Rule number one for giving conference talks, don't go to verses you just thought of at the time. <laughs> There's this, um, he wishes that they would, those who trouble you would, would uh, go whole hog, cut the whole thing off. And then he says in the next breath, um, do not bite and devour. Right? So clearly, 
The Apostle Paul's polemical language against the Judaizers is fully consistent with his exhortation to the saints not to bite and devour. So he's, he's not saying, this is not polemical pacifism. This is not uh, that you, you must always say nice things about everybody in every situation. That's not how it works. At the same time, when you are involved in a polemical exchange, you have to understand that, you're, that your heart is one of the issues involved. That, that you can't just pretend to be an unfallen creature and give yourself over to the battle with, well, of course, I wouldn't want any vainglory myself in, in this. That's not how it, that's not how it works. So you, uh, just as we said earlier that grace has a backbone, so also does the refusal to disrupt the body of Christ and the peace and the unity of the body of Christ over dumb things. Uh, that doesn't mean that you never draw a line. And it doesn't mean you can't tell the difference between what's, a, what's trivial and, and what's not. The apostle, and sometimes you'll, you'll draw a line where um, the Apostle Paul did when he confronted Peter at Antioch over the seating arrangements at the potluck. Right? He said the gospel's at stake because you're withdrawing, from the, you're, you're withdrawing table fellowship from Gentiles and the gospel's at stake in this. And so he, he draws a hard line and, and he goes to goes to war over that. But he says uh, that he would be willing to not drink wine, not eat meat. Uh, I'll forgo anything if, if I can keep from stumbling a brother. If I can avoid stumbling a brother, I want to be elastic. I want to be malleable. I really want to bend backwards to keep from offending someone that I should not offend. And in Colossians, he says, why do you uh, uh, submit to decrees? saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Why do, you put up, why do you put up with that? Why do you submit to legalisms? And why don't you go the 10th and 11th mile for your brother? Well, clearly, God is giving us this, this Bible because he wants us to grow up and think like adults. Okay, is this a legalist that I should resist? Is this a former alcoholic that I should not stumble? Or is this a former alcoholic who spent six months in a legalistic church where he's learned all the jargon of the legalist, but what re what's really happening is he's a weaker brother. What do I do? How do I act? How do I respond? Well, Reformed Catholicity attacks the problem of envy, striving, whatever, whatever the badges of honor in your circles are. My Bible's more underlined than yours. My blue jeans are more worn out in the knees from praying than yours. My phylactery is wider than yours. My robes are more flowing than yours. Whatever the, whatever the badges of honor are, and every human society has them. Every human society has ways of dispensing attaboys and dispensing admonitions and rebukes. And everybody who is ambitious, as you ought to be, right? if God, God created you, put you in this world, put testosterone in your body, you should, you should want to conquer things. You should want to do things. You should want to accomplish things. But you must, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, undertake the accomplishment of them in the Jesus way and not in the me first way. And the Jesus way is to imitate Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Now, here's the, here's the problem. When you, when you back, in, back in James... When you follow him, you say, okay, God has, um, 
God has put me in a world where there will be conflicts. What do I do when someone, this is a minister's conference, anybody ever been lied about? Anybody ever, has anybody here ever had stories spread about them through the church that just flat weren't true or circulated at Presbytery that weren't true? Um, things that you're accused of denying things you don't deny, accused of, of, of affirming things you uh, uh, don't affirm. Has that ever happened to you? Well, Jesus says, when these things are done of you, in that day, rejoice and be glad. Amen. Right? You say, whoa. whoa. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Right? Well, we would say, in that day, Jesus said, I will be your buddy, and there will be one set of footprints on the sand. Because... <laughs> <laughs> How do you, why did that joke work in this group? <laughs> How do you know about that? So, so there's, um, you want, we want Jesus to take us aside and say, I know just how you feel. I know just how you feel. And you're, you're perfectly in the right to be feeling sorry for yourself. But he says, no, rejoice and be glad. Now, I said early in the previous talk where in Psalm 2, it says the Lord... Uh, the, the, the Son of God goes to the cross just as it, the Scripture had written, and, the, and God the Father's response to this is to laugh, to hold them in derision. This worked. Jesus himself, although Jesus was the one who sweat blood in the garden beforehand, it says in Hebrews that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus knew the story. Jesus was walking through the story, and as he was, he was walking through the story, he knew the story. And here's how the story works. Jesus teaches that authority flows to those who take responsibility. Authority flees those who try to evade responsibility. And taking responsibility includes taking responsibility for other people's screw-ups. That's what Jesus, we're, we're imitating Jesus, right? What did Jesus do ultimately, completely, and perfectly? Jesus died blamed for things he didn't do. Jesus died with all of our sins placed upon him, God poured out, he's the propitiatory death. God's wrath was coming at us. He's the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Husbands, love your wives like that. Husbands, love your wives that way. Pastors, love your congregations that way. That means being willing to be found at fault for things that they did. That's the spirit of it. Now, we can't, uh, we are finite creatures, we are fallible, we're sinful, and so consequently we're not qualified to be the perfect stand-in. We can't be a vicarious stand-in, right? Je Jesus is the only one who could be a perfect vicarious stand-in for his people. Nevertheless, imperfect husbands are told to imitate that vicarious stand-in that he did, and we see both Moses and Paul doing the same thing. Paul wished that he could be blamed for the sins of unbelieving Israel. Moses wished that he could be blotted out of God's book of life if that would let them in. He had the, the desire was, oh Lord, please let me be found in fault instead of him. Now, when that happens, and it can only, it can only happen if there's a Jesus thing going on, it can only happen if you are uh, to use the Puritan language, uh, engaging in mortification. Uh, John Owen said, let, 
Let not him think he makes any progress in godliness who walks not daily over the bellies of his own lusts. Right? And the central lust, it, it doesn't have to do with mashed potatoes. It doesn't have to do with sex. It doesn't have to do um, with bodily lust. The central lust that you have to walk over the belly of is the lust of envy and striving and glory and promotion. Now, Jesus doesn't say, Jesus doesn't tell us to eliminate the, the seats of honor at weddings. He's not an egalitarian. He's not a communist. He's not a leveler. Jesus doesn't tell us to eliminate the seats of honor at weddings. He teaches us how to get into them. Isn't that what he says? When you go to a wedding, don't plunk down into the seat of honor. Um, take the lowest seat. If you, if you sit down on the seat of honor, the master of the ceremonies is going to come and say, I'm sorry, we're expecting more uh, some dignitaries, so I'm going to have to ask you. And then Jesus said, you're going to be humiliated. He said, take the lowest seat, and then you'll be invited up. And if you aren't invited up, you don't mind because you took that seat. If you are invited up, his word is fulfilled. One time Nancy and I went to a wedding, and uh, this was great. We went to a wedding, and we took the lowest seat at the wedding. And just like in the Bible, uh, family uh, came up to us, oh, no, no, we want you to just, uh, sit up here. And so we got promoted just like in the Bible. And then some unexpected family uh, arrived. <laughs> and I was like, this is not in the Bible at all. So, uh, so I threw down and there was a big scene. <laughs> no, I dutifully went. So Jesus, Jesus says, Jesus teaches us how to get into them. He doesn't say to rip out the chief seats in the synagogues. You can't you can't do that. Human, human society is inescapably hierarchical. You're not going to change. The, there's, there's going to be the front row and there's going to be the back row. There's going to be people who are leading the worship service and people who are not leading the worship service. There are going to be people who are taller and people who are shorter. You're, you can't get rid of that, um, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I heard one speaker one time say if an egalitarian came into a business office and Changed, it made everybody wear a uniform. Everybody got the same basic desk, one kind of phone on the desk. Everybody got a pad of paper and a pencil, and everybody got the same thing. And, and they were issued all these things, and then he stormed out and said, now get along. One, as soon as he was out of the room, somebody would say, my desk is closer to the window. <laughs> or, conversely, your desk is closer to the window. You can't, you can't get away from this stuff. You, you have to break the back of it. You have, to, you have to deal with it in a different way. And Jesus says that when you follow what he says, where's Jesus now? He's at the right hand of God the Father in glory. How did he get there? Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So what happened was Jesus was obedient, as it says in Philippians 2, obedient even to the death, of, even the death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. So it's a death, burial, and a resurrection. Now, when someone comes to you and charges you with being arrogant, you know, um, so you're having this, uh, why, do you, why do you think I'm arrogant, you might ask? Well, because you always think you're right. Um, and you're thinking a little bubble thought over your head. And you're bringing this admonition because you think you're wrong about it, are you? Um, <laughs> note to memo to you. Don't say things like that. <laughs> Note to self. Don't do that. All of you, all of us, 
think, always think we're right. We don't think we're always right, but we always think we're right. I can, I can look back over the last 30 years and say I can tell you all kinds of places, some, some of which I can identify and some that I cannot yet identify, but I'm perfectly willing to grant there are all kinds of areas where I was just totally out to lunch and di didn't know what I was talking about. I don't think I'm always right, but I always think I'm right, just like you. Everybody thinks that. that that's what it means to think something, right? <laughs> you don't have to deal with it. If someone says, I don't... I don't think I'm always right, I think. <laughs> what, you, what you're saying is, if to, to, uh, Chesterton says that an open mind is meant to be like an open mouth, intended to close on something. So when you close on something and you come to a conclusion, you think you're right. So when someone comes to rebuke you, rebuke you for thinking you're right, he's doing so because he thinks he's right, just like you. But you don't want to argue because there's two bad things that could happen. You could argue with him and lose the argument, which would be bad. Uh, or you could argue with him and win the argument, which would be worse. You always argue with everything. Someone comes to you and argues that you always argue with him. No, I don't. <laughs> and then, then you could pull out the file cabinet with all the instances in which, in fact, you did not argue. But you're arguing now, and you're winning now, and you're making things worse. It just makes it worse. If you argue, you, may, it, it, you lose, it's worse, it, uh, um, it's bad, and if you win, it's even worse than that. That doesn't mean that you are to collapse in a heap. That doesn't mean that you are to be, you know, uh, whatever. I, because that would mean, in effect, that you're not able to be a leader. You can't, uh, pastors should be vertebrates. Pastors need to be able to lead, say, this way, not that way. This is what we're going to do. No, um, I, we can't do that. You've got to, there's got to be some shape to it. But it has to be the shape, the fundamental shape, has to be a cruciform shape. And, and this is how it works. When you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, you, that's not the same thing as humbling yourself under every stray accusation. But when you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, it says, He will lift you up. When He lifts you up, there are some people out there who were your adversaries, let's say, who are good-hearted Christian people, and the Holy Spirit has manifested something, and they, because you've embraced the way of the cross in this, God speaks to you and to them. And there are people who come back and say, I'm sorry, I, I misjudged that situation. Thank you, you know, and, and good reconciliation happens. If, if they are your sworn enemy, and they're not going to be happy no matter what you do, if you embrace the way of the cross and God, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he lifts you up, then God has refuted the accusation, but it's God's refutation, not yours. Right? It's God's refutation, not yours. Going back to David, David refuses. He, when he cuts off Saul's, um, the corner of Saul's robe, his conscience smites him about that, Right? Um, he said he's showing admirable restraint, and, and yet he just does a little proof thing. He, his conscience bothers him to go that far. Um, and when David is brought to the throne of Israel, God put him there. Jonathan sees it. God put him there. He didn't vindicate himself. He didn't say, I, I, need, to I, need, to, I need to make this point. Nobody else is going to make this point. Um, well, 
surrender it to God and let God make the point if God thinks the point must be made. And if God thinks the point must be made, he will make it according to his pattern of vindication. This is his pattern of vindication. Um, and this is not a big mystery, right? Uh, Joseph, you know, so Joseph had the dreams, the, the sheaves bounding, bowing down to his, and this, you know, Joseph had a word from the Lord. And so when he's thrown down in the pit, what would he, and he's sold into slavery in Egypt, what would he be justified in thinking? Don't know that he did in fact think this, but what would he be justified in thinking? It could be, this is my big promotion. Things are really starting to move now. <laughs> yeah, they are starting to move, but you're in a caravan being taken off to Egypt. But that's what it was. This is God's, this is God's pattern, right? Enslavement, humiliation, and restoration. Joseph in Egypt. This is uh, David before his um, brothers. This is Isaac being vindicated uh, over against his older brother Ishmael. This is uh, the... Older shall serve the younger with Jacob and Esau. God loves underdog stories. God loves underdog stories. He tells them all the time. And we want to be the underdog without, and here's the catch, without actually being the underdog. <laughs> we, we want, yeah, we admire underdogs over there. We like this kind of story. It resonates with us. But stepping into that status is, it pinches. So, but it goes back to what Jesus said, in that day rejoice and be glad. In that day rejoice and be glad. So Catholicity starts at home, and it starts at home by you embracing this process of mortification in the old Puritan language with regard to your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, the men on the elder board, the, the people in your congregation, in concentric circles, working its way out. This is not to say that you will never come into conflict with someone who's close to you. But if you come into conf conflict with someone who's close to you, it had better be, you need to say, it had better be me uh, bringing this to a head by means of deferring, taking the lower place, uh, and God lifting you up. If that's the way it is, if you, then then fine, let it roll. But if it's you grabbing, you know, that's my spot. That's, why, why do you get to do that? How come, how come, how come, how come, why wasn't that me? Um, then you're the wrong guy in the, in the narrative. You're watching the movie that God made, and God made the movie with a particular uh, protagonist and an antagonist. And if you're an antagonist watching that movie, reinterpreting everything that happens as though the antagonist were the protagonist. Um, you're inverting God's storytelling. You're inverting the whole um, moral structure of things. So, um, any comments or questions thus far? Yes. Well, you preserve, you, you preserve every form of Reformed Catholicity that's worth preserving, and it brings, it rips it with the other forms. It makes it worse. So, okay, so there are, there are people that you ought to be, that there are people you ought to be at peace with, and this way enables you to be at peace with them.
not defending yourself at every opportunity, correct. And being willing to defend yourself, like the Apostle Paul does again in the book of Galatians, when he was accused of changing his travel itinerary, and he goes to great, he, in the first part of Galatians, he's hauling out his airline stubs, right? Showing, I went to Jerusalem here, and I did this, and I didn't do that. He does the same thing in Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul is willing to defend himself when he believes that what is actually being attacked is his office, not himself, right? And you see the same thing with uh, David in the Psalms. He hates the enemies of God with a perfect hatred. But his own enemies, like Saul, you never saw a more long-suffering, forbearing person than David who dealing with a personal en enemy. He put up with insult after insult after insult um, of his own enemies. But if it's God's enemies, he wants to discharge the office that he has, whether it's king or prophet or, you know, whatever. So the, the question is, if I'm in a fight, if I'm in a battle, am I in a battle with... Who would Jesus fight? Right. Who would Jesus fight in these circumstances? Who would Jesus refuse to fight? Who does Jesus refuse to fight? Who does Jesus fight? Well, here's a, that's a, a, a broad sketch, but Jesus refuses to fight Romans. He constantly fought Pharisees. Okay? So you have false covenant members, Pharisees, that Jesus just needles them and... You know, think of it this way. Um, I, the, the, name of this con the, the this name of the conference is the Puritan Five. Initially, there was going to be five talks, but then we had scheduling issues. So we know, yes, Puritan Five just was four talks. <laughs> We're trying to mess with your head. Actually, so we think Puritan is a good name. I'm, I love the Puritans. I love reading the Puritans. I've, I've learned an enormous amount from the Puritans. But if, if we went back into the first century first century Judaism, um, etymologically and practically speaking, Phariseeism, Phariseeism is very close to Puritanism. Okay, so um, uh, the Puritans were those who wanted to purify the Church of England of its popish leftovers. They wanted a pure, unadulterated religion. The Pharisee was the same thing. They wanted separation, purity. They were all about purity. They were um, a very diligent, conservative group. And Jesus... Jesus, through his adroit use of polemical warfare, has wrecked the word Phariseeism for all time. Right? Um, it's like right up there with Nazi. Nobody, nobody, suppose this was the Pharise Pharisaical Five Conference. Um, <laughs> nobody, wants to be a, nobody wants to be a Pharisee. But... They were diligent and scrupulous, and you know, there were a lot of things that could be said. And some good Pharisees warned Jesus about a plot against his life. There were, there were some good guys. But Jesus, especially in Matthew 23, just takes a nine-pound sledge to the, the, the whole thing. He makes fun of their hairdos on TBN. He makes fun of the gold-plated thrones, and he makes fun of, you know, he just... The width of their phylacteries and how their robes flow, and they strain. He, he's a caricaturist. He just—it's a demolition, jo demolition job, and it's within the covenant. All right. So I have to say, okay, now there's. Uh, let's take another step back. People will say, yeah, but you're not Jesus, pal. All right. Okay. Granted. Right. Let's. <laughs> granted. But I'm not Jesus when I try to love my kids either. 
I'm not Jesus when I try to work hard for my family either. I do that imperfectly. Everything I do in imitation of Jesus is going to be imperfect. Everything I do in imitation of him is going to fall short. Is that an argument for not trying at all? How is that an argument for not trying at all? Right? Um, am I like perfectly like Jesus when I show grace to someone who's offended me? No, I, don't, I do it imperfectly. But that's not an argument for not doing it. Am I totally like Jesus when I use sarcasm in, in exchange with someone who's being religiously uh, pretentious? No, I don't do it perfectly. There are times where I've missed, times where I, I, mean, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that, oop, you know. Uh, but what else is new? That's, that's the way, that's what it's like being a follower of Jesus. You don't do it perfectly, but you confess it when you don't. You pick yourself up and study the Bible and try to learn more. But how, how can I do this more and more? So, um, what I think should be mocked by us is sort of ecclesiastical stuffed, stuffed shirt pretentiousness and, and an inability to maintain a sense of godly proportion, right? If you don't have a sense of godly proportion, what does Jesus do? What do the apostles do? They say, guys, and, and stepping into that is not abandoning the way of the cross temporarily. No, it's following it. You follow Jesus. You, you take up your cross, Jesus says. Uh, Jesus doesn't say take up your cross and go wander in the woods. Make sure to fall into every hole. Um, he says, take up your cross and follow me. So there are times when you have to be hard when you wish you could be soft. There are times when you have to be soft when you wish you could be hard. There are going to be times, that you, you know, it's, you have to do what Jesus says to do. Follow Jesus the way the Bible sets it out, as best you understand it. Right, was there, yes, in the back. Yes. Yes. Let me repeat the question and see if I've got it. Someone attacks, someone attacks your office. You are convinced they're attacking the office. They may put it down as personal deficiencies in you, but you think it's all about office. But you don't want to defend your office. You'd rather not defend your office because you know that, especially with the gallery, the nickel seats that are set up here, <laughs> you know that it's going to look like you just got on your high horse. Right? Well, that's that's part of why this is a, a mortification, right? right? I, I have to not care what people think of me. Provided, if, what does God think of what, that, what just went down? Um, if I was faithful, I have to not care what people think. Now, that doesn't just mean that you, I, I have to, uh, we have to look at how all these uh, things double up. One time I was talking to a young man, uh, spiky hair and tats and that sort of thing. And I said, suppose we were to walk you down, walk downtown, and I said, and you were all grunged up like this, and some church ladies um, saw you like that. And I said, what would they, what would they think? And he said, well, I, I don't really care um, what other people think. And I said, okay, let's get you a crew cut and a nice little jacket and tie <laughs> and, and walk you downtown. And those same ladies walk by you and they say, oh, what a nice, are you singing in the choir now? 
And, and uh, he's a, he was a bright kid, and he said, I guess I do care what people think. <laughs> right? it's, it's a who, who, whom sort of situation. It, what I have to do is say, okay, if Jesus, when he, when he ministered to tax collectors and uh, prostitutes, didn't care about his reputation, right? He's, he had the reputation to be a drunkard and a, uh, a, a drunkard and a glutton. He didn't, he didn't care. But Jesus also didn't care if people thought he was something of a Pharisee, right? Jesus said some pretty strict things also. So there are times, I, I, and I can, there have been numerous times where I've been able to write the script in advance. I know, I know if I do this, I know what people are going to say, and that's the worst thing in the world in my lexicon. The thing they're going to call me is the worst thing. I don't think I have a legalistic bone in my body. Um, but I, I'm in a situation where I have to take action here, and I know the charge is going to be legalism. Or I know the charge is going to be the very thing I've been so eager to avoid. That's why they use that. All right. So it, what it boils down to, that's why this, this kind of thing has to be uh, calculated in terms of mortification. I must die. In order to serve God's people, I must die. And I can die in a thousand different ways. You know, and I just don't see any way around that. The minister is supposed to lay down his life for his people in imitation of Christ. And there are numerous creative ways that people come up with for arranging for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> there was another hand up here. Yeah, um, the, the question is, how do you tell who's who, right? Who's the legalist? Who's the Pharisee? Who's the weaker brother? Who's the person who just heard a report and believed, believed and you said they don't come with labels on their foreheads? Well, maybe you could do that. <laughs> Here, would you be willing to wear this T-shirt? <laughs> uh, well, obviously not. What, basically what you do, and, and this is going to sound like a funny um, bit of advice, get the theology of crucifixion, the theology of mortification, the death of Jesus is the key to all this. That, so when I'm preaching, uh, if, I, if I have an emotional churn in the congregation, if people are starting to finger point, if there's starting to be blame games going on between people or toward the session or toward me, and that sort of churn is starting to build, what I must do is I must preach the cross because that's the only solution to this. Christ crucified, God in the flesh, nailed to a tree. And you start preaching that, and you don't have to necessarily and say this applies to the debates about the color of the nursery. Um, but it does, right? And, and many times you won't, have to, you won't have to push it into that corner if you're preaching Christ crucified and you're praying beforehand, God, use these shafts, have these arrows that I'm letting loose hit those problem. So that's the, the first thing. Respond with the cross, not just cruciform living, but cruciform preaching. Um, churches that are getting into a churn like that need Christ crucified, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. Not in, not in a way that's simplistic where you're telling, like I said earlier, you're telling Christians how to become Christians. But there's a depth there that you, um, 
you have to embrace. So the theolo- basically, first, embrace, preach, declare the theology of Christ crucified. Secondly, I would say steep yourself in biblical stories and types. Steep yourself in biblical stories and types. When you say, oh, Saul, oh, Laban. What, you know, someone comes in your office and says, what do I do with my employer? He's, and he's on the elder board. My employer uh, has changed my wages ten times. And you say, um, well, in Genesis, this is what Jacob, this is what Jacob did. You have to understand, understand how to how to let stories shape your view of the world. How does typology shape your view of the world? But don't just do that without. If you do that first, without dying first, then you're just going to interpret all the stories in the Bible in a self-serving way. Son of a gun, here I am, David again. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I'm just lucky. I'm always David. <laughs> okay, was there another? Okay, so um, the um, what we think I think we have to do to be if we want to be the right kind of troublemakers is um, the, mocking the tradition of the elders, even though I love. We should love, honor, and keep those traditions. Right? What do, um, I'm a Westminsterian Calvinist. I'm a Puritan. I'm an old school, I'm an old school Presbyterian. Uh, that's, that's where I learned all this stuff. And, and, and I learned a bunch of the stuff that got, has gotten me in trouble from books published by publishers who wouldn't have anything to do with me, and I learned everything I got from their books. <laughs> I sometimes think... They must not read these things. They, they must just find them in a library and just get somebody to typeset it and say, you know, uh, Reformed Heritage and then put it out there, or Sola Deo Gloria or Banner of Truth. Um, if they have the, the tradition of the elders uh, draped over their heads like so many Westminster tablecloths and they've obscured their vision and all they do is bump into things, then I think it's appropriate to point out. I think it's appropriate to point I think it's necessary. Um, to point out, but I'm not up. I'm uh, I'm not upbraiding them for having the tablecloth. Right? When uh, Jesus says that they sit in Moses' seat, they they sit in Moses' seat. Uh, yeah, they're better than the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the liberals. The Pharisees are the conservatives. And the Pharisees believed all the Bible. The Sadducees just believed the first five books. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. The Pharisees believed in uh, angels and demons, and the Sadducees didn't. The Sadducees were the liberals, and the Pharisees were the conservatives. And Jesus is the one who made uh, the Pharisees much more obnoxious that, down through history. And we who are conservatives ought to, shouldn't that perhaps bring us up short? It, can conservatism ever go wrong? Can, you know, to, to ask the question is to answer it. So, I want to be a Puritan, but I want to be, um, I want to be the, kind of, the kind of Puritan that uh, has, puts other things first, right? Dying with Jesus first. And recognize that there are members of my party who haven't, and members of other parties who have. Right? So there, there are, I, I, I can... Um, there might be an Ar- Arminian friend who 
lives functionally much more of a consistent Calvinist than I do. What do I do about Arminians who it's Jesus is in everything and they live that way more consistently than I do. I think it. And if I, if I said that to them, they would say, oh, no, no. If I said that to them in theological terms, oh, no. But in practical terms, day-to-day terms, they live that way. So it's the two sons in the parable. The son who says, I go, and then doesn't, and the son who says, I won't go, and does. There are many Christian brothers who say, and learn to say in seminary, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to do that. And then they go. That's better than Calvinists who say, we go, we go, we go, and then we don't do it at all. So, now of course, there are two other possibilities. There's, there's a son who could say, I'm not going to go, and doesn't. And then we should strive to be the son who says, I will go, and then we go. So, um, the, the zeal that we should show is not a zeal for, to play one-upsmanship with, other, you know, with others who are close to us, or someone who is, looks like he might be promoted, or he might, he might get the call to that church, or he might become an elder and uh, be elected by the congregation, be on the session, give me fits. And he, he might, you know, we see the convergence, we're coming toward this intersection, and so the first thing we must do is die. First thing we must do is die, and then the next thing we must do is read the story and read the story, not in self-serving ways, but read the story having died. Read the story having died. Any last questions? All right, well, let's thank the Lord. Our Father and gracious God, we are very grateful to you for, the, for gathering us together like this. I pray that you'd um, uh, bless these thoughts that we've been working through, uh, make them fruitful in our meditation. I, I pray that you'd be with every church that's represented here. I pray your Holy Spirit would rest upon them all. Uh, Take these things that have been learned and use them to encourage uh, your servants, these ministers, and use them in turn to encourage your your people uh, back home. Father, we commit the uh, grace agenda, uh, disputatio and grace agenda, uh, to you, ask you to bless that. And we ask that you would also um, be with us as we seek to worship you this uh, weekend as we come before you. We offer it all up to you in Jesus' name. And we do this um, for his glory, and we ask you to bless it to our good. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. You can find the rest of the talks to the Puritan Five today on the Canon app.